Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends, Sean Walker of Simple Co. Hey, guys. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Hello. How you doing, man? I'm all right. I'm all right. All right. How are you? I'm doing great. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patrons to our Patreon campaign, JJ at Whiskey Moon Woodworks, Mike Miller, and David Schneepeck. Thank you for listening and for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. With that, Guy, we're going to go right into it. What's your first question? Oh, I'm first? You're first this week. Okay. First question. Hey, guys, I help all as well. And this is from uh, J.D. Messick. Hey, guys, I hope all is well. When I was building my Roubaix workbench, I ran into a rust problem. I purchased kiln-dried lumber from a trusted source. I drilled a hole in some four-inch thick walnut for my tail vise end cap. I inserted my benchcrafted screw to check the fit and left it for a few days. When I removed the screw, it had rusted. Any thoughts on why this had happened? Should I paint the section of the screw that will remain in the end cap? Well, the reason it rusted is because there's too much moisture in the in the wood, plain and simple. As far as painting the section of the screw, I don't know if I would do that. I might want to check with the folks at Benchcraft. That's a very expensive piece of equipment to be modifying. Four-inch thick walnut, even kiln-dried, is going to be, depending on your shop conditions and where you live, it's still going to have some moisture in it, and it's, there's going to be more moisture in the in the center of it than there is towards the outside. I, I, I don't really know any way to combat this mm. other than just let the stuff sit in your in your shop for more than a couple of weeks. You know, most of the stuff I bring in, even if it's kiln dried, most of the stuff I buy is air dried. But when I buy kiln dried lumber. I still let it sit in my shop for three to four weeks mm. before I attempt to use it. And that's just typically five quarter or four quarter stock. So do you have any thoughts on this, Hui? It, it sounds like he already has everything together and built. Uh, in fact, actually, I know Josh yeah. lives in 10 minutes away from me. And uh, Oh, I didn't know his name was Josh. You just put JD. Sorry about that, Josh. Yeah, yeah. Joshua Messick. He's a good friend of mine. He built a beautiful bench. And, uh, I think maybe just adding a little bit of paste wax to the end of it to uh, give it some form of coating, because I believe the end cap is glued in at this point. So, uh, you know, he's probably in a situation where he's got to, I mean, he's just got to use it Yeah. or take, take out the screw and allow, uh, the internals of the walnut to try to acclimate to what the sort of surface yeah. moisture content is on on the walnut that's the only thing i can think yeah, of. yeah the wax is a really good idea i don't know that's so obvious i didn't think of it but i think after a while it will dry out oh yeah i think it's just a temporary thing is it bench four inches thick or is it a lamination uh it's four inches uh, it, it's laminated on the on the flat face face mm -hmm. yeah then turned I was going to say, that had been a pretty expensive bench top, four inches thick. He made a pretty hefty bench. It's no joke. I'd love to see it. Walnut, I wish, man, that, that's going to be nice. Well, the end cap is walnut. The The rest is, I believe, oh, I yeah, gotcha. the rest of the bench is ash. Still, yeah, okay. 
uh, for some reason, I was thinking the whole bench was uh, was walnut. I was like, "Wow, that's real nice." I don't even know where you could find four four inch thick walnut. I lo- I was looking for some twelve quarter once, and it took me a long time to find it. I can't even think of where I would get four inch thick walnut in yeah. one piece, anyways. I believe he ordered it from Bell Forest through the um, the Wood Whisperer Guild. Okay, and and so the end cap was just this one piece, but yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. It's I don't <laughs> four quarter is or uh, sixteen quarter is a rare, rare occurrence. Yeah, for me. How 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 far south are you? Where you are in Alabama, Hui? Are you near the coast? Or are you much? You're more you're more northern than that. Huh? Yeah, I'm about an hour away from the Tennessee border, an hour south of the Tennessee border. What's the humidity like? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, and the other thing is that uh, I do know Josh does not have climate control in his shop, uh, so that might be. Although I don't know, it, you would think that the rest of the screw would be rusted too, wouldn't it? Not just the section that's inside of the walnut, which makes you think that it's got to be the walnut. It's got to be the walnut. That would be my. That's that's the reason I said that. You know, you get those moisture meters, and yeah, even the ones that just don't have pins in them. They only go so deep. Right. You know, and four inch thick, man. It's gotta have some water in there. So I think it's just a moisture problem with the with the wood. I'm I looking thought, at go ahead, Sean. Nothing. I was just I was looking at his um his bench on Instagram. Really nice. Yeah, he went all out with the hardware too. He got the uh premium set. Oh, you guys in Alabama have big bucks, I guess. <laughs> it's an Alabama thing. I don't know about that. It might be uh, the fact that he's also an engineer too. <laughs> yeah, all you engineer types, all you rocket scientists down there in Alabama. Yeah. So I think, Sean, you have the next question. <laughs> all right. Gents, I'm torn at the moment as I'm in the process of outfitting my new 400 square foot standalone shop. Until recently, I planned installing a two-stage dust collection system with a super dust deputy, externally venting fan, and hard ducting with blast gauge to each tool. I recently snagged up a fist tool domino and ETC 125, and I'm becoming a convert and seriously considering scrapping the dust collector plan and getting an extractor to switch around as needed for each tool. What are your thoughts on going with one method over the other? I can't afford both at the moment. Which extractor would you recommend? And is it feasible to hook up a single extractor to all my other non-festival equipment? Uh, I'm assuming that a little adapter would be needed for each. So pretty much this comes down to the classic definition between uh, of the difference between the two. An extractor is a low volume, high pressure. The dust collector is a high volume, low pressure. And tools require a certain CFM Uh, which is the volume of air that the machine can move from the intake to the exhaust in a given amount of time. And the CT MIDI, which is just an example that I'm going to take because he doesn't mention an exact model, Uh, but it advertises uh, right around 130 CFM. And most tools in your shop are going to require more than that, probably 350, 400 or more for your table saw, joiner, planer, Mm -hmm. and your other larger tools. The lower CFM, but higher pressure like the CT MIDI would be good for your hand power tools like your orbital sander and your domino. It is also important to note that the CT MIDI and these smaller extractors are going to have smaller hoses on them. Uh, so you're probably going to run into some issues of A, it being a pain in the butt to move around and with adapters and whatnot. And B, you're going to have some clogging issues. Yep. Um, and what I currently do is just use a dust collector to all of my big tools. And then I use a cheap shop vac for my hand power tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hui, what, what is your setup like and what are your, your opinions on the matter? 
My opinion is is exactly like you said. It really comes down to volume. With the bigger tools, your table saw, your joiner, your planer, you're going to need that volume because there it's going to be expelling a lot of wood chips, a lot. Yeah, especially the 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 planer and the joiner. Yes, not so much on the table saw or the band saw mm-hmm. or the disc or spindle sanders. You can get away with a, a shop vac on something like that. A planer joiner, no. In fact, actually, for my for my uh, spindle sander, my belt sander, my smaller benchtop tools, I use a shop vac for or dust extractor. Same here. What he's also mentioning too is is piping from the. CT vac, right? The Festool vac. Well, what that does is that it actually creates a, some line loss. Now you've got air traveling through more hose and that decreases the amount of power that you're getting from your CT vac. You're creating a line loss. So the 130 at the, you know, at, at the best possibility is now way less than that. And for the big tools, I, I think a dust collection system of some sort. And it, and it doesn't even have to be an elaborate one. I mean, a two-stage system doesn't have to be an elaborate, you know, hard ducted thing and hard hardwired into your shop. I mean, it can be, you know, one tool at a time. I think, Guy, you do that, right? Yes. Which, I mean, Guy, do you have anything more to add about the differences between using a dust extractor or a dust collector? Yes, there's big differences. We've talked about them already, or you guys have mentioned them already. The, the two-stage dust collection system, especially for something like your planer and your joiner, where those things are throwing out a lot of chips, not dust, but chips. You try to get that through a shop vac or a dust extract or whatever the heck you want to call it. It's just going to jam up, plain and simple. Plus, you're going from a four-inch port on most machines down to like, you know, especially on the CT, it's 27 millimeters, whatever the heck that is. You know, it's only like an inch something. Mm-hmm. It's pretty small. It's not all also a, mesh, uh, a matter of CFM. It's also a matter of static pressure. Mm. And because that, that when you take that CT and if you try to put a bigger hose on it or a bigger opening on it, it's going to lose all its static pressure too. Right. It's not going to suck. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not, it's, it's, that's not a pun. Um but it's just not going to suck and it's not going to do a good job. When I got my first dust collector, it was 2000, maybe 99. And it was the old bag type, one and a half horse. But I didn't have it going to my table saw because I didn't want the big thing hanging down from the ceiling because it was all hard plumbed. So I just had a shop vac underneath it. And to be honest with you, it did fine. I didn't have any issues at all with it. Yeah. The big advantage to a larger two-stage system, in my opinion anyways, is that it'll do all your power tools, all your big machines. Mm -hmm. In a lot of situations when you have the larger central dust collection system, it's hard plumbed to each machine with blast gates. It just makes it more convenient. For years, I just had the, the that same old uh, it was a Powermatic system that I wheeled around to each machine. Actually, I just had a hose. But every time I wanted to change the machine, use a different machine, I just moved the hose around. Mm-hmm. And it was fine. If you've got one of these dust extractors right now, the the Festool thing, and you really don't have a lot of money, I mean, I myself, I've never used one. I've heard good things about them. But that Harbor Freight two horsepower, which is probably more like a one horsepower, 
I know you can get that thing for like a hundred or 130 bucks. It's really cheap. I used it for quite a while. Yeah. It, it's good. It's very good for, for what it is, for the price that you pay. It's excellent. I did the same and I, I upgraded to the Win Industries filter or whatever it's called on top. Yeah. Which is probably more expensive than the dust collector. It is. It was. <laughs> and you know what I moved on to next and it's still a really good price is the uh, the Grizzly. It's not a um a uh, doesn't have the two stage or the uh, whatever it's called the um cyclone cyclone yes yeah it's just a standard dust collector but it is a two horsepower it comes with the finer filter on top and it's only like three hundred and fifty dollars I mean that's that's what I use and I have it uh, running to multiple tools with blast gates and stuff so if you want to compromise a little bit you can get the Grizzly or the Harbor Freight and the uh, the CT Mini because it sounded like your other setup was going to be rather expensive so maybe you can split that in half and get both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really deep subject. And I, I don't know if we could cover it all in, in one sitting. So, yeah. So what do you have for us? All right. I've got a question from Newtone Woodworker. It says, Hey guys, loving the podcast and listening to the back catalog. Well, I hope you don't fall asleep. <laughs> Topic for Hui. Can you elaborate on the benefits, ease of use and justification with your scope of work and the cost of the Panto router? Do you think this is a tool where you will find a way to use it nearly on every project? That thing looks awesome. Thanks, Newtone Woodworker. Okay, so uh, so yeah, the Panto Router. If you're not familiar with the Panto Router, go on the internet, do a search for the Panto Router. It was originally developed by Matthias Wandel. He's in Canada. It was a wooden machine at first. He made it out of wood. And then uh, Deep, I believe he was in Japan at the time, developed a, a commercially available model of it. And then uh, Max Sheldon partnered with both of them and created a company and he now sells a commercially available Panto router, and that's what I have. The machine is expensive. It's uh, uh I think eighteen hundred dollars with like the full up kit, the router, the machine, all these templates, the whole works. It looks a lot in a way to the multi router. There, they are two different machines. It, it, it sort of touts the ability to create an integral tenon. And a matching, uh, excuse me, a mortise and a matching integral tenon. It's all done with the use of templates, though. It is done with the use of templates. That's correct. And the templates have a way of of adjusting. And I just want to say that the reason why I think the Panto router sort of prevails over the multi router is because the multi, the Panto router had developed uh, well. The templates are te- are tapered, and that gives you the ability to micro adjust the fit of the tenons to the mortise. And I think that's a pretty cool thing. And what I mean by integral tenon is that the tenon is part of the workpiece, right? A loose tenon is what you're going to see in something like a domino. And you can do a, a loose tenon, uh, do loose tenon joinery just with a regular router and you know router table and making your own tenon stock. Why, the reason why I chose to get the Pano router is because I wanted that integral tenon. And there are a lot of other templates that go with it. I mean, you can do dovetails and you can do box joints and finger joints and all this other slew of different types of templates that, that they have. And it's it's really sort of neat, but it really comes down to what kind of workflow, how you work in your shop. Now, I am a firm believer, I think loose tenons and integral tenons, depending on their application, are equally as strong. Correct. Where you see a difference, where you might want to use an integral tenon over a loose uh, a loose tenon, is where you don't have enough space to fit a loose tenon. In other words, if you're doing some form of angled joinery, using uh, the domino might 
poke out the side of the workpiece, in which case you might have to limit the depth of cut that you have with the domino, which could which could affect the strength of the joint. Yeah, but that's such a, I would think, a very rare situation where the angle is that acute, where you're actually poking out the back of something, especially in a larger piece like that. If you take a loose tenon mm-hmm. and you put it a half inch into a piece of wood, mm-hmm. if it's tight to begin with and you put enough glue in there, it's going to be every bit as strong as an integral tenon. I completely agree. And I'm not I'm not knocking the panner router because I think it's an awesome tool. However, I think that what you're referring to on some of these situations is, is yes, they exist, but for most people that situation would never come up. Right. The other thing that I wanted to mention is the difference between bringing the work to to the tool versus bringing the tool to the work. There are some situations where I would rather bring the work to the tool, and there are situations where I'd rather bring the tool to the work. For for instance, if I'm I'm gluing up a large tabletop, I'm not going to use the panel router as an alignment tool. It just is a cumbersome way of going about doing that. I would use the domino and, you know, it really comes down to what you're, you're comfortable. You know, if you want to get the panel router because you think it's cool and because it can do a lot of stuff, which it can, then get the panel router. But there's nothing wrong with loose tenon joinery. There's nothing wrong with loose tenon joinery just using a regular router. I, I think what I'm trying to get at is try to figure out what, what you sort of tend to gravitate towards more and, and go with that method. As opposed to, well, what's better? Because there, there are caveats for one and there are caveats for the other. And, and I'll say this, the caveats are, are slim. Just like you said, they're, they're somewhat a rare situation. In which case, even if you did use the domino and you had to make an integral tenon, uh, you can still do that on the table saw, right? So um, I, I think ultimately that's what I'm sort of getting to and alluding to. Um, what's the uh, setup time like on the Panner router? It, it's not very long. Uh, it's relatively fast. But it is a tool that you do need to set up, just like any other tool. I think for if you're doing like production runs, like you're doing those chairs, that's a perfect use of the panel router. You set it up once, and mm-hmm. now you know you're building eight chairs or six chairs. Eight chairs, yep. Eight chairs, and that's a lot of integrated angled tenons. Yes. Mm-hmm. So something like that would just be awesome if you have the right if you set up the right types of jigs and the right kind of layout in your shop, you could, sure. you could do production setup with the domino. I mean, you could do production mortise and tenons, you know, on the, uh, on the hollow chisel mortiser. But I, I do get what you're saying. And I do agree, like definitely for what I was doing with a whole bunch of chairs, it made sense. I was just going to say, it's just like any other tool. I mean, realistically, you don't need a hollow chisel mortiser. You don't need a domino. You don't need a panel router. You don't need a multi-router. You don't need an FMT jig. You don't need any of that stuff. All you need is a handsaw, a chisel, <laughs> and a yeah. hammer. I mean, I, I, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. So it, it just really matter. The only thing that matters is, you know, is A, how much you want to spend. And I like all that gadgety, gizmos, expensive tool kind of stuff. I, and I'm right there with you, Hui. It's fun. I love playing with that stuff and, and figuring out how it works because that's just how my brain works. But it's not for everybody. Exactly. There's, you know, just like anything else in woodworking, there's a 
dozen different ways to do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're talking to a guy that uses only hand tools, I'd be like, why, why do you bother? You just take a saw, you put it in your vice, you mark out the lines, you go boom, 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 you're done. Mm-hmm. I don't need a $2,000 tool to do that. I've got a $50 handsaw that does that. Right. I, I mean, this is, this is a conversation that could go on for hours. Yeah. But uh, I see the benefit of it. I, I look at that tool. I, the first time I saw it, I was like, man, that's cool. I'd love to have one. Sweet. Sean, what are your, what are your feelings on all this? You've been pretty quiet. Well, just been listening to you guys. Uh, not much I can add other than the reason why I got the dominoes because I have limited time in the shop and it's saved me a whole lot of time and allowed me to knock out more projects. Before I make a, a purchase like that, it takes me a lot of uh, back and forth in my head and a lot of thinking, a lot of planning. And I'm like, man, is it worth it? But the domino was extremely worth it. Would I ever see myself buying a pan router? Probably not because I can do a majority of what I need to do with the the domino. Actually, I can do everything that I need to do for what I'm building now and uh, my woodworking, I guess, career, the domino or what else, whatever I have will fit the bill. You know, I want to add one more thing. The Panto router actually travels with some of these woodworking shows. So, you know, see when they're going to come in town, try it out, you know, because if, if you end up spending that much money and then you end up thinking it's like, man, I really wish I got the domino instead, man, that that's going to really stink, you know? And especially if you're new to woodworking and uh, relatively new to wor- woodworking and you're starting to invest in this more expensive machinery, it really stinks to not have the opportunity to at least test it out. How much is the Panto router? About 1800 yeah, no way. <laughs> no way. I know. Uh, I know somebody else that has one. Steve lied. Yep. You know. You know Steve, don't you, Sean? Yeah. He got that because he got sick of waiting for a multi router, mm. and I th- think he had some problems initially setting it up. And he said it was a. There's a lot of tweaking, but once it's up and working, it works really well. The tweaking that he was talking about is that the base used to be like sort of an, uh, an erector set. You had to put it all together. Uh, the way it is made now, and they did this to alleviate a lot of the um, error in putting it together, is that it's a solid piece of cast aluminum now. The base is a solid piece. Oh, okay. So, so that that alleviates a lot of assembly issues that people were having. Again, you know, all this stuff is really cool, but it's also all very expensive. So, just make an informed decision about not necessarily getting something really cool, but you know, if that if that's what you want to do, that's cool. That's fine too. But just try to think about what kind of woodworking you're doing now, what kind of woodworking you foresee yourself doing. And whether or not that tool fits within uh, the methods and techniques that you want to use. That's all I can really suggest. And just take a look at the tools you have now. If it's if it's a game changer for you, like if you don't have a router table or you don't have a domino, obviously you have a table saw and maybe a plunge router, it's different. But if you don't have that game changer of a tool like that already, take a little time and look at the two. But I didn't have a domino at the time and and I bought the domino and and having that now I wouldn't look at anything else just because I have everything that I need if the domino can't do something then I'll just go back to using the router table or the table saw or handheld router and maybe one more thing to suggest get a dowling jig <laughs> probably the cheapest way of doing yeah. loose ten well it's not loose ten but it's the cheapest way of doing a sort of machined process of joinery and heck, man, it might just do everything you need. <laughs> so that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, dolls have been used for a long time, man. Yeah, and they're they're just fine. Yeah, yeah, they're very strong. So 
All right. Well, I think that one, uh, we, uh, we got that one in the books. Sean, or Guy, actually, you are next. This next question is from Travis. And Travis asks, what do you guys think are the essential measuring tools that any woodworker should start out with, i.e. combination squares, rulers, etc., and any brand recommendations you may have? Any input is appreciated. I'm going to start out with two things that I think are essential tools, and then you guys can pick up from there because I don't want to just say this, 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 and then you don't have anything to say. So myself, I would get a good quality 12-inch combination square. Another good tool to have is a good um, ruler. So the first thing, two things you said there, an example, combination squares, rulers. Those are two things that are real important. I'd get a good 24-inch ruler. Uh, You can buy those fairly inexpensively. A good combination square can be expensive, um, you know, if you go a stare it or something like that, they can get really expensive. What's the name of that company, Hui, that sells those? Um- There's a company called Taylor Toolworks, and their eBay store sells blemished seconds from this company called PEC, Peck. They're really nice, and they're good price. Yep. Yeah, all that stuff is is really good. I've, I've got a, a six-inch double square that I've had from them a long time mm-hmm. and uh, really good stuff. I'd highly recommend uh, looking at that. And the stuff can be very inexpensive and still be pretty high quality. Hui, what do you have to, the, that you think are essential? For me, I love my six inch pocket rule. I've got a six inch pocket rule that I use all the time. And another thing that I like to add to the pocket rule is the rule stop. There are a couple of different brands. I know Woodpeckers makes one. I think Lee Valley makes one. I think there are a couple of uh, rule stops that you can get on Amazon for relatively cheap. But it's just a quick way of, you know, if you've got to mark out the centers for a hole or something. And, uh, you know, that that pocket rule and rule stops right there in, in your front pocket, just always available. And it's just a quick way of, of just marking and measuring. Uh, I love it. Those Those are the two things I think are are sort of essential. Lee Valley sells a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a six inch rule that has like a little stop built into the end on it. Have you ever seen those hook rules? Have you ever used a hook rule at all? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's like a hook rule. Oh, gotcha. Okay. 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 That, I've never had one, but that always looked really handy. So you, you know, you're always butted right up against the edge of something, mm-hmm. but yeah, six inch, I've got a good six inch. I've got a couple of them floating around the shop, six inch rulers. So, Oh yeah. Sean, how about you? What do you, two things, two essential marking measuring tools? Uh, well, I guess I'm going to state the obvious of a good measuring tape. Yeah. I, I began my woodworking journey with a Stanley fat max. And after about seven years, it finally broke a good fat max. I, I just like the way that it feels in the hand. It's not too heavy. It's I like the size of it. You don't find it's too big? No, I love it. Okay. The uh, I'm using a fast cap now. And although it it's nice, I just find it is too stiff. And if you let go of that sucker, it's going to cut your finger off. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, but it's just a little too stiff. And I probably will get used to it. But I just got, you know, I used that fat max for seven years until the tape ripped and then the end popped off. See, I've just got like a little cheap Stanley 12-foot tape measure. 
it's real thin. It's small. You know, I just boom, 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 and I'm I'm good with it. Yeah. Uh, probably the second thing that I would pick would be a good uh, 0.5 millimeter pencil. And I like to use the uh, the Rotaring pencil. It's really nicely made. It's going to last a long time. And it's just a, a high quality pencil uh, that I like to have in my in my shop apron. Uh, Hui, I know that you picked one of those up. Are you still using yours? Yeah, I still use it. I use it mostly for, uh, for dovetails. Uh, excuse me. Uh, I use a 0.3 millimeter actually for dovetails just because it's such a small, small line, but I do have a 0.5 and uh, I can't remember what brand it is, but I think it's a skill craft or something, but yeah, I'm a mechanical pencil user for sure. What what kind of, what kind of pencil did you say that was Sean? It's a Rotring, R-O-T-R-I-N-G. Yeah. Never heard of it. I have a, I have a zebra. Mm. Not that expensive. I got them on Amazon. They actually have, it's like, got like a spring in it. Mm Mm-hmm. So when you push it down, it's it's hard, not impossible, but it's hard to break the lead on it. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a point five, and I really like that thing. I've got a couple, three of them laying around the shop. Yeah, a good mechanical pencil. An- another good thing to have is a good marking knife. Yes, you know, and you don't even need an expensive marking nope. knife. You know, for years I used just my uh, box cutter mm-hmm. as a marking knife. If you're doing a lot of hand work, that's hard to use in some situations. You can't get it flat up against something. Mm-hmm. The first marking knife I bought was a, you know, I'm going to throw out Lee Valley again, but they have like these plastic ones. They have these long, thin blades. And they're like six bucks. Mm-hmm. Great for dovetails if you're marking out dovetails, but also for tight spaces. Yeah. I wouldn't know about marking out for dovetails, <laughs> but for... <laughs> But for other things, it works. Well. And I've I've graduated. I think I, I I bought a couple of these Narex ones that are pretty inexpensive too. Uh, Narex makes some really good stuff, and it's very inexpensive. And all that stuff's available on Amazon too. And uh, I've got a couple, three of those. I, you know, they're like ten, twelve bucks. You know, you don't have to spend all this kind of money for this kind of stuff. But one thing you do have to do is make sure that all the stuff. Is mar- you know, especially in the in the, the realm of rulers, not all rulers are accurate. So I've got a couple that I know are you know really good. Uh, I've got a couple woodpeckers ones. You know, I've got a, a a good six inch one, but I've actually taken those to the store with me when I've bought other rulers and things to make sure that the one inch is the same as the other one at one inch. You wouldn't think that's a thing, but it is. You know, especially when you start getting out at, let's say, a couple feet. Makes a difference. It can make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something to look at, too. What about a framing square? I mean, I I have the woodpeckers framing square. I think, Guy, you do, too. But what about just a, you know, regular, like an Empire's framing square or a framing square you might get at Lowe's or Home Depot? I mean, did you guys ever use it? I have a couple of them, and I have never had one that's square. Really? See, I've n- I've never had. I've only had the framing square from Woodpeckers, which I know is is expensive, but it is a very good framing square. Yeah, <clears throat> I had I bought one a long time ago, maybe thirty some years ago. But I I use it for construction and stuff. You know, I was doing, right. doing some work on a house. Uh, I wouldn't use it for fine woodworking. You know, I was, I've got two of them, and neither one of them is is perfectly square. Maybe for a couple inches it is, but when you start getting out towards the end of it, man, they're just they're all over the place. Right. Any other essential mar- marking or measuring tools? Sean, you got anything else? I did happen to throw a little bit of money down the other day. Uh-oh. Yeah, 90 bucks Ooh. on a uh, a 12-inch precision square. 
I saw Eric posting about the wood graphic and I bought one of those and man, it is nice. Is it pretty, yeah. pretty right on? Yeah. Nice. It's, it's perfect. Good. It's certified, but yeah, it's really nice. I, uh, I'm going to start using that more often because in dealing with these bookcases, if you start out square, you're going to have a better time in the end. And I really didn't have anything to, uh, to use to make sure that I was square other than like my combination square. And I want a, a permanent precision square like this that I can just grab and throw in there and make sure stuff is yeah. uh, good to go. Uh, one other thing I want to throw out there is Incra makes these things they call T-rulers. They're like thin metal sheets with a, a 90 degree stop on it. They make a three inch one and a six inch one. I highly, and they're they're not totally or completely outrageously priced, but they're not cheap either. It's not like a five dollar item. I think that's maybe like fifteen and twenty five bucks. But they they have one they call the tiny T rule, which is a three inch, and it's got you know little markings at you can go down to a sixty fourth of an inch on the thing and run along the edge of something or make marks on it. it it's it's a wonderful tool. Uh, I highly recommend at least getting the six inch. You'll you'll be using it all the time. I don't know if either of you guys have one of those. I have one. Yep, I have one. Do you guys use it quite a bit? No, unfortunately. Not. No. Really? <laughs> yeah, I do not. Do you know why I don't use it? Is because it's always in a drawer. I keep the th- I, but get a three inch one. Yeah, I keep the three inch one in my in my in my apron pocket, and I'm constantly grabbing the thing. Yeah. It's so much more accurate than taking a, the combination square. Mm-hmm. And I've got some good common. I've got one of the Hillview. Oh yeah, those are metal. nice. Yeah, it wasn't a cheap thing, um, but I've got those. But still, it's 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 not perfect. And I, I said I got I have that precision minded woodworking, so I can put that thing in there, man. If I need a thirty second of an inch, you know, three and a thirty second, boom. Yep, I'm golden with it. I like those things. So I think Sean, do you have the next question or is Hui's turn? No, I got it. All right, this is from Alan. I'm planning to build a bookshelf for my son that will be around 5.5 feet tall and three feet wide and around 15 inches deep. I'm planning to use plywood with a solid wood face frame and have two sturdiness questions. First, what thickness should I use for the plywood? I've been planning on three quarters of an inch, but I'm not sure if that is too overkill or, or too heavy or what I should be using. Second, what are some suggestions for standing stability? It'll be on carpet, so I'm wondering if there are ways to stabilize it without attaching it to the wall. My son is one and grabs and pulls and climbs on everything, so I want to make sure that there's no way he can get it off balance enough for it to come down. Thanks in advance for any suggestions and advice you have to offer. So this hits home because I'm currently building two bookcases. Uh, They are seven feet tall and two and a half feet wide, so it's pretty similar to what you're talking about, although mine are only 11 inches deep. I would vote for to use three quarter of an inch plywood. It's not going to be that much more expensive to use three quarter plywood, and it's probably going to give you a little bit of a stiffer case. Uh, even though the face frame and the back panel will probably help stiffen it up a little bit, I would feel better using three quarter inch plywood. And uh, since the shelves are going to be three quarters of an inch thick, having one thickness of stock means there's going to be less waste because you can use the offcuts from cutting the panels for the shelves. And although weight can potentially be an issue. I would personally say that the pros outweigh the cons, and I vote for three quarters of an inch. And before I move on to the second part, uh, what do you guys think about using half inch versus three quarter on a bookcase this size? I would use three quarter. I would use three quarter. 
it, it's mainly it doesn't you're not going to see it because it's going to have a solid wood face frame mm-hmm. and i'm assuming the shelves are going to have a uh, an edge on it too so the, it'll match that face frame which is pretty standard on a bookcase um you're right about the price sean the difference between you know depending on where what kind of plywood you're getting but the difference between forty dollars and fifty dollars or eighty dollars and ninety dollars it's not going to make that much of a difference. Just go with the thicker plywood. You'll be you'll be happier in the long run. Mm-hmm. It'll be stiffer. And having you know half inch for this part, three quarter for this part, because your shelves are going to be three quarters of an inch thick. Um, there's no way you can get away with half inch material for something that's three feet wide and it's going to hold books. It's just going to sag, even with the face frame on the on the shelves. So we all vote three quarter. So you got to yeah. get it. <laughs> so standing stability. <laughs> uh, I've been thinking about this. Uh, probably quite a bit lately because the two bookcases I'm making are from my sister and her family and they have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and I know them very well and I know they're going to be pulling on stuff and climbing stuff. And it's, it's a major concern because I don't want these huge bookcases falling over. And especially like you're saying, you've got carpet, which is only going to add to the potential for the bookcase to rock and move very easily. You know, all of the methods that I've seen involve attaching something to the wall, either some anti-tip kit or some sort mm-hmm. of furniture restraint kit. They're all attached to the wall, unfortunately. And I, I'm i not familiar with the way to stabilize it without either attaching it to the wall or to the floor or doing something to the furniture itself. But everything that I've seen is, is a pointing toward attaching it to the wall. Are you guys aware of any other method of for keeping it stable? No. I was thinking the same thing, like either using some form of a cleat or something to attach it to the wall. That's it. Yeah. Short of building into the base, uh, a place where you can put like four or 500 pounds of concrete. (laughs) So it can't be tipped over. You've got to attach it to a wall. This is, this is a problem that's been, that's as old as furniture. It's something that tall can be tipped over. I mean, it's, it's physics. You know, I, I'm sure you could explain the engineering of it. We, I, I can't. Uh, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you've got to attach it to the yeah. wall somehow. I, you know, French cleat. I don't think you need to go, just a couple screws into a stud, and that's all you need, just to make sure he can't pull it off the wall. This is especially true for for carpet. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really going to rock. I know that there are a few different ways to connect it. There are some brackets to connect to the top that you connect to the uh, to the wall, and there are some uh, little wall anchors that you can attach to the wall that you drill a hole through the back of the bookcase and attach to the top of the bookcase. There's several different methods, so I'm actually going to start investigating that here pretty soon on which one I'm going to go with. If you're interested in what I go with, um, I'm sure I'll post it on one of my social media channels. Another thing, holes can easily be fixed, and um, I'd rather have to fill holes than worry about the bookcase falling. The biggest thing is to make sure you get it flat up against the wall and that's either coping the bottom so it goes up against, you know, because of the, the, the baseboard or in most cases, what you want to do is you want to cut the baseboard so it, it sits flat up against the wall. And like I said, if it were me, I would just drive a couple screws into the studs right through the back. You know, they're going to have books on it and it's going to be heavy to begin with. I, I think you're going to be fine, but you've got to you've got to you've got to attach it to a wall, especially with the one year old. And he says grabs and pulls and climbs on everything. Man, I wouldn't sleep well without having it attached. Yeah, I wish we had another answer for you, Alan. But that's <laughs> it is what it is, man. <laughs> yep. 
So, uh, Hui, do you have the, uh, the final question for us? Yeah, this one comes from Tom. What's up, guys? I'm hoping by the end of the summer to have a much bigger shop space. First purchase I would like to make is a joiner. Looking at the Grizzly 8-inch with a helical head, any opinions on that specific one would be great. Also, open to suggestions on others. But my main question is, does a joiner replace a planer? Besides a planer being self-feeding, what are the actual differences? Thanks, guys. Looking forward to the show every other week. Tom. Simple answer. A joiner flattens a planer thicknesses. If you put a board into a planer that is not flat, you're going to get a potato chip in, you're going to get a potato chip out. So a joiner is used to... Why would you put potato chips in a planer? <laughs> I knew you were going to say something like that. The joiner is used to flatten... Well, then why did you say it? <laughs> the joiner is used to flatten the face of the board before it goes through the thickness planer and uh, and also to to square up an edge to the fence of the jointer. There are methods, as we have discussed in past episodes, to use a planer as a, a method of joint uh, face jointing. There are other uh, attachments, sleds, and jigs that you can use as well. Man, using a jointer, especially one that's well-tuned, is a dream to use and it makes milling lumber uh, enjoyable and a lot easier to do. Do you guys have anything to add to, you know, the very basic answer that I get gave? Can can any of you expound a little bit more on that? No, I mean it's it's really simple. You know, you have a, a joiner, and you know, you've got an eight inch, so you can take an eight inch board and you can face join it, and that gives you your reference face. In other words, I've got one flat face. Then you take that and you put it in your planer, and you put that jointed face down, and then the the planer cuts a parallel face to that. So now you've got two parallel edges, and that's where two parallel faces. That's what you were talking about. We potato chip in, potato chip out. If you don't have a reference face to begin with on a planer, you're, you're just going to have a bad day. You can skip plane and stuff like that, but it's it's really not worth it. Going back to his original question, eight inch grizzly eight inch with a helical head. Now I had that particular joiner. I think you did also, Hui, didn't you? That's correct. Did you have the helical head on it? I had an aftermarket bird Chelix. I didn't have the grizzly brand. Yeah, it's, it's six and one half dozen the other. Great, great, great piece of equipment. Yep. It was inexpensive, had more than enough power. The only issue I ever had with that thing is every time I moved the fence, it went out of square. But it only takes a second to get it back into to square. I kept a, a square right at the machine. because I. And, but I didn't move it that often, so it didn't really matter. So, but yeah, that is a, it's a beast of a machine. I, I highly recommend that if you're going to get a, a, if you want to get into a, a good long bed joiner. Did you ever have a joiner with dovetailed ways? I, I know that the one yes. the one you had b- before was was a parallelogram, correct? Yeah, I had. The, well, that's a good point. Um, I had a six inch jet with straight knives and the the, the dovetail ways beds. It was fine when I first got over the years, though it it started to sag sag, especially the infeed table, mm-hmm. and I had to put some brass shim stock in there. But it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it's just regular machine maintenance. With the parallelogram, I set it once and I never changed it again. Yep, I had that thing for I think three years. Yeah, yeah. I I had my first jointer was a six inch uh, with with dovetail. It was a jet as well with dovetail ways and um i'm sorry not my not my first one it was uh 
that was my second one. My first one was a <laughs> was a Harbor Freight six inch joiner with dovetail ways, and um, <laughs> yeah, uh, actually it wasn't a bad machine for 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 what I used it for, which was thin stock. It was fine, but but yeah, o- over time you do uh, they do sort of uh, sag a little bit, and and you do have to add those shims. But again, like you said, it's not that big of a deal. When I first, uh, my first machine was a Grizzly six inch and I found myself making uh, planar sleds often mm. to joint and thickness material wider than six inches. And uh, it worked, worked really well. There's a little bit of effort to get it set up, but it allowed me to essentially joint and plane 12 inch wide material. Um, so that's a great option if you just want to go the planer first, but it looks like you're talking about getting the Grizzly eight inch. And uh, like I was saying, that's a, it's a great machine. Yep. It is a really great machine. Or you can just go whole hog and get a joiner planer combination. Nice 12 inch joiner, 12 inch planer. Sweet. Do like 95% of all the material you ever have coming through your shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, I think that's the last question. So let's talk about some woodworking highlights, uh, people that we would like to feature and uh, give a shout out to. Sean, who would you like to highlight this week? This week, I'm going to um, shout out Justin De-, De Palma, and I know that you guys are aware of him. Guy, you've heard of him before, I think. Yeah, I know. Justin's Justin's awesome. Yeah, he's very talented uh, cabinet maker, woodworker. And one thing that I really like about his, his channel and his feed is he's constantly teaching you, whether that be on stories or posts or text. Uh, just a great channel to or feed to check out on Instagram. Um, I believe it is at Justin De Palma. Yeah, he's a, he's got a great feed and he's posted some curved windows that he just made. Just just awesome work. It's Justin underscore De Palma on Instagram. D I Palma. Yep. Yeah, he he actually did the the trim for that the the curved trim that goes around the window. He carved it all by hand. Jeez, it's insane. Yeah, <laughs> I said how long, I asked him how long it take to do oh, about four hours. Oh, not a big deal. Yeah, very, very talented guy. Yeah, he's 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 amazing. So my person to follow this week is Brian Grella, and his feed is Garage Woodworks with an S on the end. I've known Brian for a long time. He's a he's a good guy, and he's right now he's building this wine cabinet, and this thing is massive. <laughs> I keep asking him how he's going to deliver it. But it's not only he builds some really great stuff. He's got a YouTube channel also. But his feed, he's he's like me. He's got a really dry, sarcastic humor. And it really shows in his feed. And he just posts some great stuff and it's really funny. I, I really suggest checking him out. Quee? All right. So for my feature this week is Eric Reeson. That's E-R-I-C-R-E-A-S-O-N. And the reason why I really like his feed, and I actually like his YouTube channel a lot too, is because he tested, first off, he's a phenomenal cabinet maker and furniture maker, but he does a lot of testing with water-based coatings. And it's really interesting what he comes up with and how he tests. So he does a very uh, comprehensive test of all the stuff that goes through his shop. He's just constantly bringing in different uh, coding materials that he's testing. So it's, it's always changing. And, and I've had the opportunity to talk to him on several occasions now, more in detail about, about the testing that, he, that he's done and, and also some tips about finishing. So he's a really great guy, very knowledgeable. He's in Nashville. Uh, check out Eric Reeson. I think you'll like him. Well, all right. I think that about wraps up the show. 
Please remember this podcast is here to answer your woodworking questions. So if you have woodworking questions that you would like answered, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We'd also like to thank everyone that left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, I can be found at guyswoodshop.com. Sean? I can be found at simplecove.com and at simplecove on social media. All right. Well, guys, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. See you later. See you later.